Good morning. Um, Today we're reading Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 12. That can be found on page 528 of your Pew Bible if you would like to follow along. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Thank you, Sarah. That was uh, the best part of the sermon right there, every week, the scripture reading. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met yet, let's change that sometime today. I would love to be able to connect with you. It would be an honor to hear a little bit about your story and uh, why you've darkened our doors today. We know it can be an intimidating thing to come into a new space. So we're glad that you took courage today to join us. Thank you for being here. Uh, let's find a time to connect. But right now, we're going to connect with the Lord by diving into his word. We live in a world with more choices than ever. The last time you walked down the cereal aisle in Giant, you were faced with more than 250 different choices. Uh, Probably like more than 100 different coffee options on the coffee aisle. How about the milk aisle, right? You got skim milk, 1%, 2%, whole, half and half, non-dairy milk, coconut milk, cashew milk, almond milk, silk milk, I don't know what silk milk is, but uh, oat milk, goat milk, there's probably others. Of course, there's no morality attached to the choices that you make there. Uh, and the stakes aren't really all that high when you're trying to make your decision between Golden Grams or Cinnamon Toast Crunch, though obviously the wise choice is Golden Grams there. Uh, but what about when the stakes are raised for us and our choices? Like, no Bible verse is going to explicitly tell you who to marry or which job to take, or whether to move or stay put. How do we make wise decisions? Well, that's where a book like Proverbs is really helpful for us. Proverbs are general observations about life that help us rightly relate to real-life situations that don't have easy answers. A couple weeks ago, we described the whole book of Proverbs like, a set of lenses that we look at the world through to help us properly understand the world from God's perspective. That's what Proverbs is, like spectacles that you put on to understand how God has fashioned this world to work. So make no mistake, none of us in here have 20-20 vision. We don't. You need these lenses every moment of every day. And Proverbs is one of the only tools that can sort of bring our world into focus, that can help us live well in God's world. That's kind of been our working definition that Will provided for us the first week in in Proverbs. Wisdom is the ability to do life well in God's world. The book of Proverbs is the ticket to doing, or at least a ticket to doing life well in God's world. 
I've told you guys before about this book that I read years ago. It's called uh, Moonwalking with Einstein. I still can't moonwalk, though I can do the floss, which I will not demonstrate for you. But the book isn't about dancing at all, actually. Um, it's about remembering. It tells the story of Josh Foer, who was just a normal dude like you and me for the first few decades of his life. And then seemingly out of nowhere, uh, he became the memory champion of the world. He could memorize and regurgitate more facts and more sequences than anyone else in the world. It's a really great book, Moonwalking with Einstein, very interesting. But one of the tricks that he advocates in that book is something called a mind palace. It goes something like this. Step one, choose a place that you know well, like your home, for example. Step two, plan a route through that place, like front door, coat rack, living room, dining room, kitchen, back patio, you know, however, however it's uh, laid out in your house. And step three, make a list of something that you want to memorize or that you need to memorize. Maybe you need to memorize a, a shopping list uh, of grocery items, for instance. So uh, carrots, bread, tea, milk, whatever. And then step four, take uh, one of those items at a time and then place a mental image of those items at a distinct place in your memory palace. So somewhere along that route through your house. And try to make those images come alive with exaggeration or humor and have them interact with each location. For example, if the first item on your list is carrots and the first place in your memory palace is the front door, then picture some giant carrots opening up the front door. That's his way of memorizing facts. Then as you're walking through giant, the point is you walk through your memory palace and you see giant carrots opening up the front door. A loaf of bread is your couch. in the living room. Milk is flowing in your kiddie pool out back or something like that. And that's how you remember to purchase those things. Uh, it's, it's a clever trick that I've tried before and it's worked relatively well, though I am no memory champ for sure. Proverbs 3 is all about remembering. Remembering the right things at the right time. The problem is for us, though, as believers, we have to remember to remember, Right? Although not a Christian, Josh Foer, the author of this book, he goes on to say something profound about our memories that is reflected here in Proverbs 3. He says this, Who we are and what we do is fundamentally a function of what we remember. Our memories make us who we are. They are the seat of our values and the source of our character. So, he says, if you want to live a memorable life, you have to be the kind of person who remembers to remember. Solomon knows this. Do you see it there in verse 1? He says, Do not forget my teaching." Or we might say, remember to remember my teaching. Human beings are products of their memories. At any given moment in the present, we are acting in accordance with something in our past. And what Solomon is saying is that the wisest among us remember to remember. Now, sitting here in the safety of this room right now, relatively protected from temptation or distraction in this moment, This probably seems like a pretty plausible thing for us, right? Yeah, I'll just remember the right thing when it's time. But you know as well as I do, in the heat of battle, many well-laid plans are forgotten. The difference between an exceptional soldier and just an average one is the ability to remember the fundamentals when the stakes are at their highest. A clutch soldier maintains his cool when the bullets are flying because his muscle memory takes over in that moment. Without even thinking about it, they have to come to a place where they remember their their training and they act on that memory. In the same way, the, the difference 
between exceptional Christians and average ones is the ability to remember the right things when we are in the fires of temptation. Muscle memory needs to be able to take over and we should act in accordance with what we remember. Wise Christians remember to remember the word. They spend their lives remembering. They don't live in the present, they live in the past, in their memories of this book, of God's care for them. And I think we can be sure that Solomon does not mean for us to remember merely in the sense of bring this to mind occasionally. That's not what he's talking about. This is deeper than mere rote memorization. Surely Solomon means let what I'm about to say grip you and move you. Feel the memory deep in your bones. Look at the language he employs there in verse 3. He says, bind this around your neck. Write this on your heart. What exactly is Solomon urging us to write into our hearts? Verse 3 says, steadfast love and faithfulness. And I don't think verse 3 is referring to your steadfast love and faithfulness. These are words that throughout the Old Testament are descriptions of God's unconditional love for his people. Not our love for him or for each other, but God's love for us. Solomon is encouraging us to be absolutely convinced and never lose grasp of God's unconditional love for us. To know that you know that you know that he is for you and in your corner. But we should ask ourselves, as Christians, how does knowing that God is for us make us wise? What, what, like, why this dropped into the middle of a chapter or a book about wisdom? How does knowing this, that God is for us, help us make wise decisions when we are faced with ambiguous, difficult decisions? Well, it should give you poise in the midst of that decision-making process, right? It should prevent anxiety. We make better decisions when we are poised. It's when we lose our poise that we say things that we regret and we act in ways that are foolish. But knowing that we are safe in God's unconditional love, that we don't have to perform at a certain level to get him to show his love toward us, it should, that should give us poise. We don't have to be impressive in any scenario because we are safe in God's love. Solomon is saying that we are to spend our days remembering God's love for us so routinely that the poise of wisdom is baked right into the recipe of our hearts. Like we're just looking at the world through God's lenses, through the book, the wisdom of the book of Proverbs. And by God's grace, if that's true, the wisdom of God ought to just like ooze out of us in any given scenario. Do you remember those Gatorade commercials years ago um, where you'd see athletes literally sweating out the color of the Gatorade that they would drink? Do you guys remember these? Maybe it was just on ESPN, the channel that you, many of you don't even care about. But there'd be orange sweat or blue sweat or purple sweat, whatever. That's the idea here, that we've so internalized truth that it just oozes out of us. So in the end, Proverbs 3 isn't about learning something new today. It's about remembering something really old. Here's its basic call on us this morning, I think. The big idea, the central takeaway of these 12 verses is this. Remember to reject the seduction of self-sufficiency. That's what the call of Proverbs 3 is. Remember to reject the seduction of self-sufficiency. And there are three things to remember here that will help us reject self-sufficiency. First is this. Remember who to distrust. Remember who to distrust. First, notice what's missing from this opening verse compared to what we might get like in most Disney songs these days. 
Solomon doesn't say, follow your heart. He doesn't say, you do you, son. He doesn't say, spread your wings and fly. He says, remember my teaching. And what we learned last time is actually remembering God's word, this book. In a world bent on its own ways, let's not get this twisted, church. Pastor D.A. Horton puts some real traction on this, on this idea, I think. He says, the highway to hell is lined up with people cheering each other on, saying, you do you. So Solomon is advocating for an appropriate distrust of our own wisdom. Verse 5, look at it. Don't lean on your own understanding. Verse 7, don't be wise in your own eyes. Wisdom starts with you recognizing that you don't have it. This is why living in a community of committed believers is so essential for us. We all have different valuable perspectives. If you've ever watched an Eagles game, you've seen the value of the community of cameras that they have on hand at any game. It becomes apparent when there's this really close play. Maybe right down at the goal line, the Eagles think that they have scored. The Cowboys think that they've stopped them from scoring. We all know the truth of it. But the cameras help tell the real story, right? In all the chaos of the moment, the refs aren't sure one way or the other if they scored or not. So what do they do? They run over to the instant replay camera. And there isn't just one camera angle. There's many angles that they analyze. And these several camera angles uh, are angled at the same play, and each angle tells a little bit different of a story. But it's all the same play. And if you put them all together you can usually get the best idea of how the play unfolded and if the Eagles actually crossed over into the end zone or not. We, we know that they did, but uh, the cameras will tell the story. This is why Solomon says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Because in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Bringing many angles together provides a better picture for how to proceed wisely. It's like when you hear yourself on a recording, maybe for the first time, or you hear yourself speaking on video, and you're like, ew, that's, that's awful. I don't sound like that. And so you ask your friend or a spouse, is that really what I sound like? And they're like, yeah, bro, sorry, that, that's you. <laughs> Surround yourself with wisdom to get a clearer picture of what's going on. The point is, don't lean on your own understanding. Have an appropriate distrust of yourself. Jesus at the foot of the cross showed us what this looked like with five simple words. Not my will, but yours. Jesus is putting on his wisdom spectacles right there and surrendering his desire in favor of his father's. Instead of trusting what he wanted, he was actively putting his trust in his father's wisdom. This is so instructive for us, and it's the second observation for us this morning. Remember who to distrust, you. Remember who to trust, God. Jesus' words here should be the theme of our lives, of our days, of our hours, of our minutes. Not my will, but yours, God. Not my wisdom prevailing, but your wisdom prevailing in every situation. Remember to remember God's wisdom and learn to be suspicious of your own. I think we're all pretty spring-loaded to be self-sufficient and not self-doubtful. We're spring-loaded to be self-sufficient but not self-doubtful. But Jesus himself didn't act this way. We shouldn't either. Not my wisdom, but yours. 
Uh, when my kids were younger and the first of Disney's live-action remakes were coming out, I think Cinderella was the first one, maybe not the first, but one of the first. Uh, and you know when these Disney movies are over, they always have a pop song that's related to the story in some way as, as the credits are playing. And this one from the Cinderella movie is super catchy, and so my girls started singing it at the top of their lungs in our house. Here are some of the lyrics. When once upon a time, in stories and in rhyme, a moment you can shine and wear, I feel embarrassed reading this out loud right now, <laughs> and wear your own crown, be the one that rescues you through the clouds, you'll see the blue. Trust in your heart and your sun shines forever and ever. Hold fast to kindness and your light shines forever and ever. I believe in you and in me. First of all, what? <laughs> like, what? I don't even get this music, man. But anyway, do you see the lie this song is selling to our kids? Be the one that rescues you. Trust in your heart. I believe in me. This is the opposite of what we ought to do. We are not subject matter experts on life. We aren't. We don't know what we're doing. We act like we do. We don't. Man, forget Disney. We need true wisdom, church. And so, I kid you not, Miriam changed the lyrics to the song if our kids were going to sing it in our house. So instead, my kids would belt this out at the top of their lungs. Don't trust in your heart. Let God's love shine forever and ever. I don't know if it's legal or not to change lyrics. Don't report us, but we did that in our house. Okay, it may seem to you, especially if you're not a Christian or if you're new to Christianity, that I'm just trying to humiliate us today. You don't know what you're doing. Um, but I truly just want to help. I want to free you from the shackles of feeling like you have to figure out life all on your own and act like you have it all together because you don't and neither do I. Distrust your wisdom and instead trust God's. Verse 5, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible probably. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, look at that carefully. It does not say believe in God. You can, we should all, our ears should all perk up at this. You can believe in God and yet still trust something else for your real significance in life. Your happiness in life. It doesn't say believe in God. It says trust in the Lord with all your heart. Whatever it is that brings you significance and happiness, that is your real God, your functional Savior, your true trust. So do just a catalog right now. What is it that brings you happiness? So much so that if it was ripped away, you would be inordinately discouraged about that thing. Whatever that is, that is probably a functional savior in your life. Tim Keller, I think, frames this so well. He says, it is only when something goes wrong with, say, your career or your family that you realize it is much more important to you than the Lord himself. What does this have to do with wisdom? Everything. There are excessive emotions surrounding things you make the functional trust of your heart. Whether it's your career, wealth, spouse, children, or some romantic relationship, you will be inordinately shaken, anxious, angry, or despondent if anything threatens them. They cloud your judgment and distort your vision of yourself and the world. Idolatries of the heart lead to foolishness in the life. 
So what is it for you this morning that gets you most, most hot and bothered when it isn't going your way? For me, I tend to get most bothered when people think less of me than I want them to think. When some of you think less of me than I want you to think. I want them to think that I'm competent and charismatic and Christ-like. But when that slips from my grasp, either because I've made a poor choice or you've misunderstood me, whatever, when that slips from my grasp and I lose all sense of control over that, I, I start to spiral. Where's my functional trust? In the Lord? No. It's in others' affection and appreciation for me. And so I begin to act in ways that are unwise. I've done it a lot recently. Inordinate discouragement. Preoccupation with my situation, which leads to avoidance of my kids, me holding up by myself, or avoidance of my spouse, or avoidance of my friends. It's because functional trust in anything other than God muddles wise living. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. But what does it mean? What does it really mean to trust in the Lord with all your heart? I think the simplest definition is found in the very next verse. It says, in all your ways acknowledge him. Now to me, this seems like a nearly impossible task. To actively think about the Lord in every one of our many varied scenarios that we face every day, it, it's, it almost feels debilitating. How in the world am I supposed to think about God's wisdom while teaching my kid pre-algebra or common core math? How, how does God's wisdom come into play in those moments? But if we put on our wisdom lenses routinely, it ought to become like muscle memory, like the soldier in battle. We'll be doing it without acting wisely, without even thinking. We'll be interacting patiently with our kids while the pre-algebra book graces the dining room table. Well, what is it that might motivate us to perk up our ears this morning, to listen to God's wisdom? What might motivate us to take God up on his claim that we ought to trust him? What's the one thing that might make us sit up and give him a listen? Well, you'll find all the motivation you need in all of the even verses. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. In fact, I'm not sure if you've no you'd noticed this about Proverbs 3 before, but if you look at all the odd-numbered verses, you'll see a number of obligations that you and I have in our relationship with God. But in the even verses, we get the blessings for those pursuits. Verse 2, he promises long life and peace. Four, finding favor with God and man. Six, your paths will be straight. Eight, you'll remain healthy. Ten, you'll be materially blessed. The story that these verses combined together tell is that God's wisdom reverses the curse of sin in our lives. These are the things that should motivate us to come to the well of God's wisdom over and over and over again. Now, I think, at least if you're anything like me, we're all kind of tempted to see the guardrails that God, God lays down in his book and bristle. We see the guardrails and we bristle. We view God's wisdom as a list of do's and don'ts rather than a life-giving well of life-giving water. One author says that there are two ways to do farming, the American way and the Middle Eastern way. The American way says, the way I know which cows are mine is by looking at the fence and seeing which cows are on my side of the fence. And I can tell which cows are yours because they're on your side of the fence. 
That's the American way of farming. The other way is the Middle Eastern way. And they sink a well in the middle of a field. That way the animals never go very far because they need water. And so they stay close to that water source. His point was that the problem with many of us is we spend all of our time on fence maintenance. Fences are necessary. Don't get me wrong. We need to know what the rules and the boundaries are. But if we spend all of our time on fence maintenance, on the boundaries, and never actually sink a well, we're going to have a bunch of thirsty sheep. Here at Trinity, we want to sink the life-giving well of the wisdom of Jesus Christ firmly in our midst. Jesus' gospel is the magnetic, life-giving center of this book, hopefully of this church, and I hope for you personally as well. If it's been a while since you've drunk from this well, can I encourage you, open up the scriptures tonight. Read Proverbs 10. Drink deeply. Drink until your soul is satisfied. And when you do, you'll begin to see the promises in the even-numbered verses becoming a reality for you. As we drink from this well more and more, we'll know that and believe that God wasn't out to get us when he set up parameters around our sex life. The world's wisdom, maybe even our own unbridled wisdom, will tell us it's important to ensure that we are physically compatible before going into marriage, right? That's a lie. Will you let God's wisdom reign in your life? God wasn't trying to prevent happiness when he called you to be generous to your church and to the mission. He wasn't being cruel when he called you to respond peacefully in, in workplace or home place conflict. He wants the best for you in those moments. He wants you drinking from the well of his wisdom because that will maximize your joy in every situation. God's well of wisdom will help you see the other side of your choices and make the right decision on this side of that choice. God wants for us to maximize our human experience. It's why he gave us the Proverbs. Why should you embrace the wisdom of God and despise your own? Because it is only God who can bring about the results that are listed here in the even-numbered verses. And if you notice, Solomon has a test for us. It's like a, a case study for us right here in verses 9 and 10. And just as a heads up, it is a hard, hard lesson to learn. Tough test. Here's the question. Will you let God's wisdom instruct your wallet? That, that is the question that, that he's asking, that Solomon is asking. Look at verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the, with the first fruits of all of your produce. Now, many of us give if there are leftovers, right? So God's wisdom says to take from, to give from the top of our ledger, not the bottom, though. He says give from the first fruits. So how do you treat your money? This is what Solomon's test case is for us to see if we're actually adopting the wisdom of God or if we're just like, we, it, it's sort of uh, something that we say but not what we actually do. The way, how do you treat your money? The way you answer that question probably reveals that financial security might be one of your functional saviors. Do you trust God's wisdom which calls for generosity? Do you really believe that you'll be more fulfilled and joyful if you give generously, give and live generously? Or do you trust the world's wisdom, which calls on you to get yours on the mad scramble to the top? 
Now, most of us, I think, are probably looking for a rule. Just give me a rule, God, and I'll do it. I'll give you right what you tell me to, but probably not a cent more. But if you give me the rule, I'll do it. But what if the Bible, especially the New Testament, tells a story that will make you more generous than a rule ever could? God is worthy of our radical, risky generosity because of his generous deliverance of us. He owns all things. He needs nothing, but in Christ he's given us everything. And that is our model for generosity. Through the megaphone of Jesus' suffering, God shouts to us, I love you and you have nothing to prove. Jesus, my son, is here for you. He became poor that you might become rich. He was generous on your behalf for every time. Jesus was generous on your behalf and on my behalf for every time. Our ugly, stingy, greedy heart says, mine. This is the most powerful motivation for faithful, sacrificial giving. giving. Not guilt, but gospel. The good news that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sake, so that we, through his poverty, poverty might become rich. When God's generosity jars us out of our comfort zone, it should fire up the engines of our own generous living and giving. No one has ever been more generous than Jesus. I mean, he left the epic joy of heaven for what in today's society would have been like life on welfare. Think about that for a second. The Lord of the universe living welfare paycheck to welfare paycheck. Coming to pay a debt so large that all the money in all the world for all time couldn't pay for it. Only the cross. God's generosity to us in Jesus is astounding. In it, we are forgiven. So let's not forget that God's generosity to us is meant to compel our own generosity to others. But how much, right? What's the rule? On this side of the cross, it's not that easy. C.S. Lewis said this. It's a hard word. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. Oof. Will we submit to the wisdom of God on our wallets? I think maybe one of the besetting sins of our generation is that we have allowed our wealth to lead us to the well of self-sufficiency. Our wealth leads us to the well of self-sufficiency. Remember, the whole point this morning is to remember to reject the seductive lie of self-sufficiency. Distrust yourself, trust the Lord, and then finally, remember your best life is later. In 2004, Joel Osteen, a pastor in Texas, published a book entitled Your Best Life Now. You've probably seen it in Barnes & Noble at some point through the years, but For as much as I hope and pray that Joel believes the true gospel of Jesus, he got this wrong. I I fixed it for him. Um, There's a really (laughs) important principle to remember when we are reading a book like Proverbs. And maybe you've felt some of the tension of, Josh, verses 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and 12, they don't seem to be like a reality in my life right now. Boiled down, 
here's a really good grid through which to read all of the Proverbs. Proverbs are generally true now, but they all will all be fully true later. In other words, you can trust this book. You can know it's unveiling the way of wisdom before you, but it is not a magic formula. For example, imagine God the Father reading verses 1 and 2 to Jesus, his son. I put it up on screen for us. Jesus, son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Honor me with your wealth, and then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. But then think of Jesus. He didn't live a long life, and it certainly wasn't a peaceful one or a wealthy one. The wine he drunk was a cup full of the Father's wrath on the cross. Did Jesus forget the Father's teaching and neglect obedience? Did he forget to remember? Was he unwise? Obviously not. The point is this. You can do everything right and still have a difficult life. I know this because of verses 11 and 12, or verse 11 specifically. Look at it. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Discipline and reproof are a reality even for the wisest among us. Hard things are the things that have to happen in order for us to become wise. No one becomes wise without bad things happening to them, without difficult spells, seasons. Every wise person you know will confirm this. You've heard this before. They say, you know, this is kind of rough news. But I grew the most through the pain of my failure and mistakes. It's a hard lesson. After that Keller quote I read earlier, he goes on to say something like this. Suffering will make you wiser or stupider. What is the key? What is the difference? Think of your most recent spell of suffering, whatever it was centered on. Has it made you wiser or stupider? What is the only thing that can supercharge your suffering to make you wiser? You have to remember that God is for you. That he's like your daddy who's injecting hard stuff into your life to make you better and stronger. That he's like the coach who's making you run, run wind sprints so that you can hoist the trophy up at the end of the season. And how can we be sure that God is for us when we suffer? Well, verses 11 and 12 are picked back up and drop down into the New Testament, into Hebrews 12. And I think Hebrews 12 is, is the key to unlocking this whole thing. But look back down at verses 11 and 12 in Proverbs 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. How can we believe this? How can we trust this? How can we actually use our suffering to become wiser? Well, just before uh, Hebrews 12 quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, it says this, Hebrews 12, 2, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what keeps you poised during hardship. This is what makes you wise when you sense the discipline of the Lord that God is so for you that he would die for you. 
that through faith we are his beloved kids. This will re-narrate your hardship. I can know God delights in me, otherwise he wouldn't have come to the cross for me. With this reality gripping our hearts, suffering can relate to our hearts the way that fire relates to gold. It will refine us and make us wise. As we close out this short series, we hop into 1 John next week. As we close out this short series, I want to leave us with three brief applications. First, based on our opening, one of our opening illustrations, build a memory palace of wisdom through regular scripture memory. You can't remember in the heat of battle what you don't know. Hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin and that you might live your best life now through the wisdom grid of God's word. Build a memory palace of wisdom through regular scripture reading. Again, you cannot remember what you do not know. Pack your heart full of this life-giving well of truth. And then finally, build a memory palace of wisdom through regular reading about Scripture. Now, I already know what you're thinking. Ain't nobody got time for that. I don't have the time, ability, or desire to do any reading outside of my Scripture reading. But listen to this lesson I learned from another pastor. Suppose you read about 250 words a minute, which is pretty average, and that you resolve to devote just 15 minutes a day to serious theological reading to deepen your grasp of biblical wisdom. In just one year, you would read for 5,475 minutes. Multiply that times 250 words per minute, and you get to 1,368,750 words per year. So almost a million and a half words a year. Now, most books have between three and 400 words in a page. So if we take 350 words per page and divide that into 1,368,750 words, you're hanging with me, I'm sure, um, If we do that, we'll get to 3,910 pages per year. That means 250 words a minute, 15 minutes a day, you could read about 20 average-sized books a year. Kind of incentivizing and encouraging. These three weapons will aid us as we seek to each day remember to reject the seduction of self-sufficiency. All right, Amanda is going to come and pray for us. Uh, an application prayer, and while she is praying, our music team and then the communion servers can come join us up here as well. All right, let's pray. Father God, um, I confess, we confess. Um, that we are drinking at the wrong well, that we um, trust in our own selves, that we rely on um, what we have created, the money that we earn, um, that we um, like to be in control, and we like to trust in other things, and we build these palaces. that are not from you. And so, Lord, we confess this, and we ask, Lord, that you would give us your wisdom, that you would help us to remember. Lord, we're so forgetful. Help us to remember. Help us to come to your well of living water. Help us to uh, just drink deeply from that well. Lord, as we come to your table, um, I just... 
think of what David wrote in Psalms 51, Lord. Um, Lord created us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. Lord, we love you and we need you and we need your grace. In Jesus' name.